chapter 4. If you're following along in the worship guide, the insert, you'll see the title of the message, Distinguishing Marks of Saving Faith. We've been walking through the Gospel of John for a couple of months now, and uh, walking through, uh, through the passage beginning in chapter 1, and uh, just now we are in chapter 4. Uh, this morning we'll be beginning in verse 43. <clears throat> so if you found your place, say amen. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was the royal official whose, name, uh, whose son was sick at Caper- uh, Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea to Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday was the seventh hour the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household this is again a second sign that jesus performed when he had come out of judea of galilee into galilee let us pray father as we open your word we ask that you would give us eyes to see ears to hear and hearts to love your word and holy spirit that you would speak into our lives in these moments that we have together this morning And it would be a challenge fitting for us as we even leave this place today. Lord, let us not look past this time that we have together before your word. And we ask that you would search our hearts, search our lives, Father. And open our eyes to see the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In this passage, we have Jesus moving from Samaria, continuing his journey to Galilee. But if you recall, and and maybe you don't, when we began the Gospel of John, we said the first 12 chapters were called the Book of Signs. And and John kind of moves the Gospel along with signs. He's showing these signs that Jesus does. And and the whole point of these signs is these signs are, are, are to point us. They're indicators showing us and directing us to see the identity of who Jesus is as Messiah. And so John is showing us through the signs that Jesus does, who he is, revealing the identity of this one, of the Messiah, of Jesus, the Son of God. This passage this morning 
ends the narrative portion of what's called the Cana Cycle. And beginning all the way back in chapter 2, we saw Jesus at the wedding feast. He attended a wedding feast, and while he was there at the wedding feast, he turned water into wine. And now, after traveling abroad, Jesus is returning to Cana after ministering in Judea. In fact, if we read in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it would flow right into verse 43. For it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Verse 40 of chapter 4 says, So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Verse 43, after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. You see, he's been on this journey traveling to Galilee. And in verse 43, we see that John continues the narrative from where he left off in verse 3. But this transitioning text between the Samaritan woman that we see in, 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 in chapter 4 and up to verse 43, and then in verse 43, the healing of the nobleman's son, this transition has been really the topic of much debate amongst critical scholarship. There are many views regarding exactly what Jesus means, or not what Jesus means, but what John is intending as he writes verses 44 and 45. It says, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him well. And the thought has been, well, this, this really doesn't make much sense. What is, what is John saying here? He's saying that they... Have no that a prophet has no honor in his own country, but then it, it shows how Jesus goes into Galilee and it's his own country and he is received warmly. Scholars debate about all the different possibilities for why John inserts this the way he does. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to give you two. And in sharing these, I'll share the first and then the second, the latter of which I think is the plausible solution in my humble opinion first many say that jesus isn't speaking about galilee or john's not recording this about about galilee but that jesus's own country should be understood as judea the place where he was born the place of of bethlehem as matthew records for us in the gospel of matthew and the genealogy but coupled with this uh, understanding jesus encounters hostility as he goes into Judea. And so because he encounters hostility, we see that in chapter 2, verse, uh, verse, verse 23. Um, so when he was, let's see. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, he knew what was in the heart. And then we see in chapter 4, verse 2, as he's still in Jerusalem, he leaves the area of Judea because, or he's in the area of Judea, he leaves the area of Judea because the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. He left, and that's when he headed to Galilee. So it would, it would make sense 
that Jesus is leaving the area of Judea to go to a, an area that's, that's more conducive for the ministry that he wants to accomplish. Jesus knew the Pharisees. He knew what was in their heart. It could even be gauged from John chapter 7, verse 1, where after these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And so you can see how Judea presented a hostile environment for the Lord. And in fact, it was ultimately as he goes into Judea where he would be crucified. Jesus was walking in Galilee, though, and he didn't want to go into Judea at this point. And so the problem with the scenario, though, is that it directly contradicts the synoptic tradition in Matthew chapter 13, verse 57, and in Mark chapter 6, verse Four, they speak of this very proverb that Jesus says being in connection with Galilee. But the text of verse 44 indicates that Galilee was the place Jesus spoke of when he stated this proverb since he was on his way there. And we've, I, I, I've read that and, and stated that. And so the second option, and I believe the correct one, affirms that Jesus was in fact speaking of Galilee. Galilee was a place where he grew up, though not his birthplace. He, he grew up in Galilee. And if this is correct, though, we, we, we must reconcile the seemingly contradictory statement between verses 44 and 45 that says the prophet has no honor in his home country and the Galileans received him. That's the apparent contradiction that critics point to. That the Galileans received him means that they welcomed him with open arms. Matthew 13, 57 is that verse that records Jesus' visit to Nazareth and says he came to his hometown and they took offense at him. Matthew and Mark both suggest that the Galileans took offense at Jesus. And so what I think we need to do is make sure that we take verse 45 and 44 together in the proper context of how it's written here. In order to do that, we, we need to continue reading and, 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 and read that second phrase. That is, in verse 45, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And of course, this is referencing back in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, where Jesus had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And many of these Galileans had gone there, and they had seen the works that Jesus had done at the Passover feast. And consequently, because they were there, they saw the good things he had done. And so when he comes to Galilee, his hometown, there is a familiarity to this Jewish boy who's grown up, the carpenter's son, and the mom, whom they know as Mary, they know his half-brothers and his half-sister, uh, or his half-brothers anyway, his siblings. And when the celebrity miracle worker comes home to their town, they're quick to receive him. But they're not quick to receive him as Messiah. Instead, they're quick to receive him as the miracle worker. They don't receive Jesus for who he was, truly, but for what he could do for them. 
The point of the miracles or the the signs as John calls them wasn't the wonder in and of itself, but the signs pointed to a, a much greater reality. The signs pointed and indicated that God the Son has come robed in flesh to redeem and to reconcile mankind. He has come to usher in salvation. He has come to show the way to to come to the Father. He has come to reveal the truth about who God is. John chapter 1 verse 18. And so the point of this sign in John chapter 4, the healing of the nobleman's son is ultimately the same as Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding feast. Ultimately the same in that it points to the glory of God through the Messiah, Christ, as He comes and accomplishes this work in order to bring salvation to His people. John says it at the end of his Gospel in chapter 20, verse 31, this way, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so in this passage, we encounter really what I think are are two types of faith. The first faith that we encounter is superficial faith. It's a superficial faith versus a saving faith. First, I want us to see this morning that superficial faith misses the truth revealed in Christ. Superficial faith misses the truth revealed in Christ. First, we have an unlikely contrast that John gives us. Beginning in, back in verse 44, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Jesus' reception among the Samaritan village that just happened earlier in chapter 4 stands then in stark contrast to his reception that's about to happen in Galilee and what's about to take place as he is in Galilee, his hometown. The Samaritans in the village received Christ for his true identity. In fact, in verse 42 here in chapter 4, it says they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of you that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed, listen, the Savior of the world. They have seen, they have seen who Jesus is and they have believed that he is the Savior of the world. Now this is in stark contrast to the wonder-worshipping Galileans, those who are seeking to see signs and wonders, those who are attracted for the show. In fact, Jesus has already spoken that this will happen in John chapter 1, verse 11, in the prologue. It says, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. You see, Christ came as a light into the world, coming to His own people The Jews, and they rejected. They did not receive him. And so there is an unlikely contrast set up here. And the ones who receive Jesus are the Samaritans. They're the ones that the Jews dislike and disdain. And when he comes to his own people, they reject him. And consequently, the superficial faith leads to a stern rebuke. 
The stern rebuke is seen in, verses, in verse 48, but in, in verses 46 and 47, we, we learn of, of, of the royal official who comes to Jesus imploring that Jesus would heal his dying son. And in verse 48, Jesus refuses his request, and he says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. If you're following in the ESV, or even the King James Version, perhaps the New King James Version, you miss that that word there is the second person plural pronoun, you, unless you, he's not, he's not just rebuking this man who has come. Instead, he's rebuking all of the gathered crowd that's there with this man. They've assembled to watch the show, and Jesus is rebuking them for being worship wanderers, or wonder worshipers, rather. And so contextually, we see Their welcoming him is on the basis of his signs and wonders. They were missing the point by focusing on the miracles and not focusing on the Messiah. The signs and wonders pointed to this much greater reality. Their long-awaited Savior has come. The point is even further proven if we fast forward in the Gospel of John to John chapter 6. It's the same Galilean following for which Jesus has multiplied bread and fish to feed 5,000. And upon completion, he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he gets there, the people have followed him. And in verse 26, Jesus says to them, they come and say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Of course, speaking about himself. And so they said to him, What then do you do for a sign? And so that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? He had just multiplied fish and bread to feed 5,000. And yet they want another sign. And in verse 65 of chapter 6, he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and we're not walking with him anymore. You see what's going on for these Galileans is they, they're fixated on the physical and they're failing to see with spiritual eyes. <clears throat> they were contented with dwelling on the sensational, on the here and now. You know, this isn't a far reach from, from what occurs today. Oftentimes, people approach Jesus from similar perspectives, even today. Superficial faith today looks like the prosperity gospel, which promotes this false dichotomy, claiming that Jesus or that following Jesus is equivalent to earthly riches because he's not destined his children to poverty. It's a false dichotomy. Or, or, or closely, the closely related name it and claim it theology, which says you, you can be healed if you just have enough faith. And if you're not healed, then you don't have enough faith. But superficial faith isn't always so flashy. 
it can be more subtle as well. It can be the man or the woman who arrives at the end of the rope and makes this empty promise to God. God, if you will do this, then I I will do anything. Or it could look like the church attender or even the, the church member. Superficial faith could could take the form of the person steeped in tradition or ritual, just going through the motions, thinking that religious devotion is is the vehicle that grants them salvation. It could be the one who's caught up in following a leader or or attracted to, to a church for all the wrong reasons, maybe for the benefits that they have. Maybe they've been entrusted with a position of leadership or or maybe they're they're serving or giving and thinking that all the time they can earn salvation that perhaps someday their good and bad will be weighed on a divine scale or maybe maybe this superficial faith is the result of a sense of social pressure or perhaps there's an addiction to the emotional high and the goosebumps that, that they get at certain times during the musical service. The variables are, are, are many. But here's the bottom line. Superficial faith focuses on the earthy. It seeks earthly benefits and it misses the blessings and joy of knowing the Savior. That which we were singing about just a few moments ago. The the joy of walking intimately with the Lord Jesus and, and knowing the Lord. Superficial faith misses God completely. And it's a distortion of the true hope offered in the gospel. Superficial faith is a false faith. And just like in John 6, in the end, superficial faith will not stand. It leaves people empty on the inside. It's what happens there in John chapter 6. It's what these Galileans are destined for if they do not repent and turn. But there was one in the crowd who exemplified the journey from superficial faith to saving faith. The one in the crowd, it was the royal official. He had come. And so I want us to see that saving faith believes the truth revealed in Christ. Superficial faith misses the truth revealed in Christ. But saving faith believes the truth that is revealed in Christ. In other words, they see the signs and the wonders not as pointing to a miracle worker as much as they see the signs and wonders pointing to a great God, a great Messiah. R.C. Sproul gives a definition of saving faith, saying, Saving faith is about coming to Jesus for who He is, not what He can do for you. I thought that was a very practical, great definition of saving faith. Now, initially in this passage, we see the royal official coming to Jesus for what He can do for him. As a royal official, he was most likely an officer in the service of Herod Antipas. And we know from the background that he's traveled about 20 miles from Capernaum in hopes of convincing Jesus to heal his son. And in verses 46 and 47, we're we're given the details of the devastating life situation that he finds himself in. His son is on his deathbed. 
many of us as parents can identify, at least put our pla- ourselves in, in the place of what it would be like for a father. It serves as an illustration for parents today. What would, what would you do if your, if your child was infected with an illness that was leading to death and you had exhausted all possible avenues within your means? No doctors could provide the remedy. No, no treatments could help. All of those have been exhausted. So what does he do? He comes to Jesus. I would submit to you that the royal official was a man of considerable means. More means than the average person of the day. And so I would submit to you that there was not one thing that he didn't try in order to see his son get well. But these doctors couldn't help. And so I, I, I want to highlight the distinguishing marks of saving faith that we see evidenced in the royal official's journey here. From superficial faith to saving faith. First off, I think we see that he, he comes humbly. Because in verse 47, it tells us that he heard about Jesus coming uh, out of Judea into Galilee. And he went to him. He was imploring him to come down and heal his son. This word imploring, it's a strong word, it's strong language. He was begging. He was begging Jesus, probably on his hands and knees, begging him to come down and heal his son, to come down from Galilee to Capernaum and heal his son. Think about what must happen here as he comes humbly. The royal official in his garb, as a dignitary, swallows his pride and he comes. He comes to the one who's from humble birth. Surely he knew Jesus' origin. And he's unconcerned with what those in his circle might say. He believes Christ can do for his son what he cannot. And so he comes humbly, swallowing his pride. He has nothing in the reserve. He is just laying it all out before Jesus at this point. Begging him, please come. My son is dying. Please come. He, he believes that Jesus can heal his son. He realized through difficult circumstances that he couldn't sustain his son's life. He realized that it was out of his hands and the only hope for his son was a miracle. And so he turns to Jesus, and as he turns to this one who works miracles, he sees something that's much greater than just a miracle worker. So he comes humbly. And at first, Jesus replies to his request with a stern rebuke. But as he replies to the request with a stern rebuke in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe the official's faith was being tested. But instead of giving up, he persisted to the point that we can almost hear the desperation in his voice. Verse 49, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. I wish we could hear the tone of his voice at this point. Perhaps even with tears in his eyes, most probably with tears in his eyes, Asking the Lord to come down so that his son will not die. In fact, the word changes here from son 
in the Greek to the word for child, a more tender word, which is used for a young child from the point of infancy through just before puberty. And so we know this was a young child. And so I, I think what we see here in verse 49 is the, not only does he come humbly, but he comes desperately. He comes desperately before the Lord. He recognizes and confesses that only Jesus can heal his son. He's desperate. The father was persistent and persevering in this quest. And at this point, he's passed the test and shown that he's like, not like the many that are there in the crowd, but he truly believes that Jesus has the power to save and to rescue his son from the clutches of death. It's this father's desperation that offers us a portrait of true saving faith. In the father's desperation, he won't let go. This is the portrait of desperation that we ought to have before the Lord as we come to him like this father longing to see his dying child made well. We ought to have this same sense of desperation as we come before the Lord crying out that He would do the work that we cannot do in and of our own self. I can remember a couple of times in my own life when I've come to such a great point of desperation and being in tears before the Lord crying out on His behalf are crying out before him on, on, on my behalf, asking God to, to do a work and to, to show himself strong and, and real in my life. Uh, I, I pray that, that, that we've all been there, at least at some point in our life. But I, I want to challenge us that this, this ought to go beyond just the every, every so often occurrence, that this ought to be a level of desperation where you and I are, are dependent upon the Lord Jesus to do a work in and through us day in and day out, that our desperation before the Lord ought to be so strong that we, we believe unless He is going to, to do a work in and through us, then what we would accomplish on our own is in vain. I think we see a tremendous portrait of of dependency and, and trusting from the royal official. I fear that desperation before the Lord is what's missing in so many lives who claim to walk with Christ. The challenge to us is in our complacent Christianity to cry out to God with such a desperation for His work in our lives the question I ask us is, do we need Christ daily like this father needs Christ? Are we that aware of our, of our depravity and our desperation before God, of our sin before Him? Are, are we ready to come to a point of, of crying out in desperation that God would deliver us from the strongholds that are in our lives that keeps us from, from walking in holiness? Those besetting sins, are we, are we ready to lay them out and cry, lay them down and, and cry out to God in desperation that he would, he would give us the strength to walk in Him and to walk by His Spirit? You see, that's the desperation that this Father has. He knows there's only one solution to the struggle of His Son's dying. He knows there's only one hope 
that can give life in the midst of death. And he comes to Jesus and he's coming to God in desperation. And I want you to know that coming to God in desperation means knowing that we are hopeless without him and realizing that he is the only true hope we have. That's where this father is. That's where he is as he comes to Jesus. He knows that Jesus is the only true hope that he has. I want to say this is really on two levels. One is for the believer who is daily walking with Christ and and struggling to surrender to Christ and not walk in the flesh but walk in the Spirit, there is a crying out to God in desperation that He would strengthen us to to walk in Him and walk in His strength. And, And then there is the person that doesn't know Christ. And this is certainly a portrait of how we, as unbelievers, would come before the Lord. We would come... Humbly, humbling ourselves, not being prideful, but come humbly, lowering ourselves before the almighty God of heaven, and then come desperately saying that if, if you don't work in my life, if you don't save me, nothing will. It's a life of confession and trust in the Lord Jesus. The third and distinguishing final mark that I want us to see, or that I think we see in this passage, is that he leaves sharing. Distinguishing mark of saving faith, the third one is that he leaves sharing. Jesus says to him, go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off, and as he was going down, his slaves met him In verse 51, his servants come out and they meet him. And so he asks the servants in 52, what was the hour? When was the hour? In verse 53, they knew, uh, they told him it was the seventh hour. And he knew exactly when Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he believed. And his whole household believed. Now that's a quick phrase, but don't miss the implication. He was rejoicing that Jesus had healed his son And when he gets home, this rejoicing just overflows and he is sharing with the household what has happened in this encounter. He has shared the the cry and the plea of his desperation and his humility before Jesus, this miracle worker, and, and that just by the power of his word, he could speak it from 20 miles away and his son would be healed. The fever would leave him. You see, he leaves sharing. There is a hope that he can't help but share. Kind of back like in in John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, where we have the illustration of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And they were bitten by the fiery serpents and God tells Moses to create a standard or create the, uh, the image of the serpent, put it on a pole, and that any child of, of God, any Israelite who was bitten by the serpent was going to die unless they looked to the standard that was raised up, the serpent that was raised up. And it, <clears throat> it's, kind of, it's kind of like that. I mean, if, if you were an Israelite during the day and, a friend 
a loved one was bitten, a kinsman was bitten, you would pick them up and you would bring them so that they could see this standard that's raised up that it might preserve and save their life. That it would remove the sting of the sin and the sting of death that was inflicted upon them and it would preserve their life. And the question I would ask us to consider this morning is, is it really any different when it comes to eternal life, spiritual life of others? Scripture tells us that all have been stung by death. That was the point. John 3.16 that follows. Jesus Christ has come into the world to bring salvation to mankind. And... And I would ask us, are we, are we like the nobleman here that we would leave sharing? Believer, is that, is that where you're at? That you've got this precious gift of eternal life. And there are, there are many souls that we come in contact with every day. Are we, are we taking this gift of life and, and this hope and joy of knowing and walking with the Savior and in sharing that with others daily? Those in our, we come in contact with? Is, is that where we are? You see, John is teaching us that Jesus is the sustainer of physical life and he is the giver of eternal life. In this narrative, we're challenged to a faith that goes beyond signs to see and to hear the word of Christ that brings salvation to the world. We see the royal official's journey from superficial faith to saving faith. How he demonstrates his faith by coming to Jesus humbly, without pride, and and coming to Jesus desperately, knowing that he is the true and only hope for life. And it results in sharing true joy and hope with others. I'm going to close by asking you a question, believer. How is God calling us, like the royal official, to act on our faith? How is God calling us, like the royal official, to act on our faith? Is it that initiatory step to believe upon Him, trust Him for salvation? Is it that continuing call to come humbly before the Lord, come desperately before the Lord, and then to live in a way where we're sharing the hope and the truth of Christ? I know that this message is a bit challenging for us. It certainly is for me. There are always areas of improvement in our lives, but I want to encourage you this morning to thank God for His grace in your life and confess those things that He has... Um, Confess those things that he is convicting you of in your life and ask him for strength. Call to him desperately to come to, to, to strengthen you and to lead you. Let us pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we want to acknowledge that you are, you are so good and you are gracious. Lord, maybe some here this morning are like the royal official who have first come to you for superficial reasons. But in coming to you for superficial reasons have recognized their great need for you. 
And I pray for those here this morning who may be at that place. I pray, God, that you would strengthen them, that you would give them insight into your word and Holy Spirit, that you would open their eyes to see their need for humility before you and desperately needing you. Lord, for each of those here this morning who have a relationship with you, I pray that you would strengthen us to walk humbly before you, to live in a way where we are desperately dependent on you and we're not walking in complacency, but day in and day out we are coming before you desperately, needing your Holy Spirit, needing your guidance in our life. Lord, we ask that you would help us to live faithfully and live in a way where we are sharing our faith joyously. So, Lord, we pray that you give us strength to respond today as you're leading. You would help us to draw near to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to.